Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org. Greetings, and with this episode, we now move out of the prehistoric Freemasonry section of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, and now we move into the history of Freemasonry. So we will start the history of Freemasonry with chapter 45, Preliminary Outlook. If the reader is given attention to the preceding part of this work, he will have been enabled to discover that what we have here named prehistoric Freemasonry is nothing more than a collection of legends and traditions taken from various sources and probably rearranged or invented at different periods during the Middle Ages when the Fraternity of Freemasons was a thoroughly operative association made up of architects and builders with a few unprofessional men of rank and wealth who had been accepted by the craft as patrons or honorary members. It is, however, only in accord with the custom of historians that we have planned to adopt the use of this word prehistoric in reference to the present subject, and not because we consider it to be an absolutely correct one when applied to the history of Freemasonry. Anthropologists, these patient, plodding, probing students of a scientific knowledge of humanity, have divided the orderly series of events in every nation or race into two distinct periods, the prehistoric and the historic. The former includes the time when the inhabitants of a country were in a condition of utter barbarism from which they gradually raised themselves to a higher state of civilization. Of the fact even of the existence of such a rude and early people we have no evidence except certain myths and legends in which they appear to have put their ideas of religious belief and, at a somewhat later period in their progress toward civilization, some fragmentary records to be found principally in the hieroglyphic monuments of ancient Egypt and in the cuneiform or wedge-shaped letters preserved in what is left to us of the engraved writings of old Assyria. But what a nation or race began, by the natural process of advancement, to climb from this lower sphere of mental backwardness to a higher one, its first labor was to preserve in written records the evidences of its existence and the memorial of its acts and doings. All that went before this era of passing from spoken traditions up to written records has been called by anthropologists the prehistoric period. All after it, the historic. Now, it is very evident that no such division can, in strictness, be applied to the history of Freemasonry. Viewed as an organized body of builders, when there ceases to be a record of the association, it must be supposed that it did not exist. There are no legends or traditions whose existence can be traced to a period before that which contains historic records of the society. These legends and traditions were not, like the earliest myths of the prehistoric nations, the outgrowth of an uneducated religious sentiment wholly unconnected with and independent of any record of events which occurred or were occurring at the same time. On the contrary, they sprang up in the Middle Ages at the very time when Freemasonry was making its lasting record in the history of Europe. They were made by Freemasons who had long before been recognized in history as an association of some importance. 
They were not the growth by some active instinct and a developing reason in an early body of builders, known to us only by these legends which have been given from one to another by mouth-to-ear means from the prehistoric times. They were the inventions of a later period, most of the facts which they detailed being borrowed from historical records, principally from the Bible or from historians of the Church, and they were indebted for their making partly to a desire to magnify and to glorify the antiquity of the institution, and partly to the influence of that legendary spirit prevailing in the Middle Ages, and which we find still more freely developed in the legends of the saints accepted by the Roman Catholic Church. These Masonic legends differ also in another respect from the prehistoric myths of oldest time. As soon as a nation began to make its history, its myths were given their proper place in the region of mythology, and the history continued to be written without any mixture with them. They were considered as things of the past. They had their influence upon the religion of the people, but they were not intruded into its political history. But from the very time of the making of the Masonic legends and traditions, they were accepted as part of the annals of the association and were put into it as a portion of its true history. As such, they have been maintained almost to the present day. Thus, we have two histories of Freemasonry, which have always been presenting themselves to our notice with the assumption of an equal claim to our belief. We have, in the first place, the authentic history, gathered from the records of all the building guilds and fraternities from Bible times, and which, assuming various forms at different periods, has ripened into the speculative Freemasonry of the present day. Then we have a mass of legends and traditions made in the Middle Ages with some others of a later day. These have been wedged into the authentic history, have grown up alongside of it, and have presented and sought to preserve a different and, of course, an apocryphal or doubtful form of history. Looking at the time and manner of the making of these legends, and the persistent way in which for some centuries they have traveled down the stream of time along with the authentic history, it would perhaps have been better to designate them as extra-historic rather than prehistoric, something not before history, but something outside of history. Yet, as they have been made to assume the appearance of prehistoric legends and have claimed, however incorrectly, to be traditions of the origin and progress of the institution at a time when there were no written records of existence, we feel ourselves excusable, and perhaps even justifiable, in tolerating temporarily this view, under the protest of this explanation, and of adopting the practice of historians in their studies of nations. There is unquestionably a prehistoric architecture. The art of building, so as to secure shelter from the effects of the seasons and protection from the attacks of wild beasts, was practiced at a period long before the existence of any written records of the existence of the arts. The cavemen must have made alterations for their greater comfort, convenience, and security in the rude holes which they made their homes, and the lake dwellers of prehistoric Switzerland exhibited, as we may judge from their remains, much skill and ingenuity in the construction of their lakeside houses. But architecture, when it is not united with and practiced by an organized craft, guild, or fraternity, is not Freemasonry. Therefore, prehistoric architecture and prehistoric Freemasonry are two entirely different things. Of the former, we have monumental records. Of the latter, we have not the same sort of evidence, and the term is used only as a form of speech, as a matter of convenience, and as a concession to custom in the treatment of historical subjects. There is one very marked difference in character between the prehistoric myths of antiquity and the legends of Freemasonry, which, for the reason just assigned, we have placed in the supposed prehistoric period of that institution. The myths of the earliest peoples found their origin and groundwork in their forced watch of the clashing powers of nature. 
The unsettled races, wandering over the wide plains and lofty mountains of the east, were necessarily struck by the alternate changes of darkness and light, of night and day. They saw and they feared the dark sky with its jewels of glittering stars and its shifting clouds. These they beheld dispersed by the rosy dawn, before which stars and clouds and darkness fled as the wild game flees before the hunter. Then they beheld the glorious sun, ushered in by the dawn, sweep across the sky, at length to be destroyed in the far west by the reviving forces of night, which again reigned supreme over the earth, until it was once more overcome by the ever-renewing dawn. This constantly recurring elemental strife gave rise to the formation of myths, which made up fables out of the wars of these opposing forces of nature, just as later men in the historic period described the battles of conflicting armies. These simple myths were undoubtedly the first acts of the human mind. As time passed onward and the intellect became more cultivated, the myths developed into a definite form of religious faith. The forces of nature were likened to persons as actual living deities. The Aryans, ancient people of Central Asia, the parent stock of the Hindus, Persians, Greeks, Latins, Celts, Anglo-Saxons, etc., out of the fire which descended from the clouds and the forked lightning, and the fire which they brought by friction out of the wood, both of which they deemed to be the same, made their god Agni. At a later period, their Greek descendants symbolized the all-healing and purifying sun, whose rays render harmless the evil influences of malaria, as Heracles, the Grecian Samson, destroying the hydra, the many-headed water serpent of the Lerna marshes, or as the light-diffusing Phoebus Apollo, who pictured the solar rays by his flowing locks of golden hair and his quiver filled with arrows. Thus it was that the simple nature myths of the primeval and founder nations, Aryan and Semitic, were in the progress of time resolved into a system of tangled mythology that became the popular religion of the ancient nations. But this mythology was separated from political and national history. The prehistoric mythology of Greece and Rome was always distinct from Grecian and Roman authentic history. Though in the earliest period, when history began to work its way out of tradition, there was undoubtedly some confused mixture of the two yet, as each nation began to keep its records. The two streams were made to flow in separate channels, and the mythical and the historical elements were not permitted to mingle. The priests preserved the former in their temple services, and the poets only referred to them in their epics and in their odes. The philosophers and the historians confined their instructions to the latter. Not so has it been with the legends, which may be called the myths, of Freemasonry. Springing into existence not at any early prehistorical period, but receiving their form at the very time when Freemasonry was already a historical institution, these traditions have traveled down at the same time with its authentic accounts, not in two independent and separated streams, but in one commingled current. At the period when the speculative element of Freemasonry withdrew itself from the alliance which it had always maintained, the traditions contained in the legend of the craft, forming the great body of Masonic myths, were put into and made an inseparable part of the true history. Nothing was rejected. Everything was accepted as authentic. Indeed, other legends borrowed from or suggested by rabbinical and Talmudical reveries were also added. Hence has arisen that badly tangled and unhappy confusion of tradition and history, of false and true, of apocryphal and authentic, that we find in all the so-called histories of Freemasonry written in the 18th century. Nor did this false method of writing cease with the passing of that period. 
It was continued into the 19th century, and its influence is still felt not only in the opinions entertained by masses of the fraternity, but in the statements made in addresses before lodges, by brethren not always unlearned or unscholarly, but who do not hesitate to advance traditions and legends as a substitute for the true history of the order. Just consider this mode of writing Masonic history. Let us take at random a single passage from one of the works of the most eminent among the writers of this school. The Druidical Memoranda, says Dr. Oliver, quote, were made in the Greek character, for the Druids had been taught masonry by Pythagoras himself, who had communicated its arcana to them, under the name he had assigned to it in his own country. This distinguished appellation, Mesoranio, I think that is, in the subsequent declension and oblivion of the science during the dark ages of barbarity and superstition might be corrupted into masonry. As it remains, being merely operative, were confined to a few hands, and these artificers and working masons. End quote. Here are no less than five positive assertions, of which but one rests on the slightest claim of authority, while the whole of them are absolutely unhistorical. 1. The statement that the Druids used the Greek character in their secret writing is made on the authority of a casual or offhand remark of Caesar, but later authorities, much better than Caesar on the subject of Druidism, have shown that the character used by them was the old Irish Ogham alphabet. 2. The assertion that the Druids practiced or were acquainted with Freemasonry is altogether doubtful and unsound. It is known that the dogmas and practices of their religion were opposed to those of Freemasonry. 3. The statement that they were taught Freemasonry by Pythagoras is offset by the simple fact that the philosopher, so far as we know, never visited Britain. 4. All that is said about the Greek word Mesoranio as the word under which Freemasonry was known to Pythagoras and given by him to the Druids is seemingly a mere fable. It had its origin in a curious whim about the source of the word first proposed by Hutchinson and which has never been accepted by competent experts in language growth. 5. The implied doctrine contained in the close of the paragraph, that the first form of Freemasonry was speculative, and that the operative branch was merely what remained after the decline and decay of the science to be practiced by working Freemasons, is in direct violation of all historic truth, which makes the speculative element an afterthought and a development out of the operative. When history is thus twisted and caricatured, what chance is there that the unlearned shall find the truth? What labor must then be imposed on the learned in their striving to exact the pure gold of facts from the worthless ore of tradition in which it has been embedded? The mode of writing Masonic history, which was adopted in the 18th century, and which, with honorable exceptions, has been pursued almost to the present day, was one by no means calculated to get at the truth or to satisfy the inquiring mind. A groundwork for the history of Freemasonry was found in The Legend of the Craft, all the statements in that old document were accepted as authentic accounts, reports of events that had actually occurred. Hence, the origin of the institution was placed at a period before the flood. All the patriarchs were declared to have been Freemasons. Noah and his sons were said to have been the means of passing on its tenets from those living before the flood to those who followed that deluge. Freemasonry's progress was traced from Noah to Moses, who was said to have practiced its mystic rites in the wilderness. From Moses, it was made to pass over to Solomon, who in some mysterious way was supposed to have organized, as its first grandmaster, an association which, however according to the preceding history, appears to have been in existence thousands of years before. 
From the king of Israel, it was made to travel from Palestine to Europe, and is landed with little respect, or at least with no accounting for the lapse of time, in the kingdom of France and in the time of Charles Martel. From him, it crosses the Channel and is reorganized in England during the reign of King Athelstan and by his brother Edwin. Such is the history of Freemasonry, that for two centuries claimed and received almost universal belief from the craft. Perhaps there never was a history of any kind that could present so few claims to complete confidence. It is fragmentary in details. Centuries are passed over without connecting links. From Abraham, who it is said, quote, had learned well the science and the art, that is, geometry and operative Freemasonry, to Moses, who is called the Grand Master of the Jewish Freemasons, a period of more than four centuries passes with the most inefficient and unsatisfactory account, if it can be credited as a report of all, of how this science and art went from the one to the other. From Moses to Solomon there occurs a great gap of 15 centuries, with scarcely an attempt to fill it up with an orderly series of successive and connected events. So the fragmentary history goes on in unsteady leaps from Solomon to Zerubbabel, from Zerubbabel to Augustus, from Augustus to Charles Martel, and finally from him to Athelstan. It is contradictory in statements. Claiming for the institution a purely Hebrew character, it mixes with strange errors the labors and the favor of Jewish patriarchs and pagan kings, and finds as much of true Freemasonry in the works of the idol-worshipping Nebuchadnezzar as in those of King Solomon. Perhaps the most important fault of these 18th century historians of Freemasonry is the entire absence of all citation of authority for the records which they have made. They assume a statement to suit their theory, but give no evidence or support from profane or sacred writers of the time when the event or events occurred that it is founded upon genuine fact and not a bare assumption or raw guess. The scholar, seeking in his historical studies for truth and truth only, finds himself thus involved in a labyrinth or maze of doubts from which all the canons, tests, and standards of criticism, however skillfully applied, fail to free him. He knows not when the writer he follows is acting on the results of his own or some predecessor's invention, or when he is reciting a report of events that have really occurred. We will not and should not credit to those writers who have thus made a romance instead of a history any willful intention to falsify the facts of history. Led astray at first by a misunderstanding of the legend of the craft, they on this mistake have framed a theory of the antiquity of Freemasonry going in the wrong direction. Then, as has occurred thousands of times before, they proceeded to fit the facts to the theory, and not, as they should have done, the theory to the facts. The doctrines of the new school of anthropology, which does not admit that the origin of the whole human family is to be found solely in the Semitic race in Palestine, were in their day unknown. Freemasonry was to those writers of that day older than the era of the revival and the establishment of the Grand Lodge of England. Its antiquity was therefore sought only in the line of the Jewish patriarchs. Thus it became venerable, not only by age, but by religious character. To this direction and end, they wished to confine its rise and progress, and they thought that they could find the proofs in their own use of the legend of the craft, and the application to it of certain passages of holy writ. They succeeded in this, at least to their own satisfaction, because the wish was father to the thought. They recognized the symbolic character of Freemasonry. Some of the most important and expressive of these symbols existed in the pagan associations of antiquity. They thought it necessary to account for this common use of the same ideas in two entirely different systems of religion, and to explain them in such a way as not to impair the validity of the claim of Freemasonry to a purely Semitic origin. 
This they did by supposing that while the divine truths taught by speculative Freemasonry were preserved in their purity by those of the descendants of Noah who had retained the instructions they had received from their great ancestor, there was at some era, generally placed at the time of the attempted building of the Tower of Babel, a secession or separation of a large number of the human race from the purer stock. These seceders rapidly lost sight of the divine truths which they had received at one time and fell into the most hurtful religious errors. Thus they defiled the purity of the worship and the orthodoxy of the faith, the principles of which had been originally given to them. There sprung up in this way two streams of Freemasonry, called by Dr. Oliver the pure and the spurious. The former was practiced by the descendants of Noah in the Jewish line, the latter by his descendants in the pagan line. Thus these theorists account for the presence of a Masonic element, though a misused one, in the mysteries of the ancient pagan nations. There was afterwards a union of these two lines, the pure and the spurious, at the building of the Temple of Jerusalem, when King Solomon welcomed the cooperation of the heathen workmen of the King of Tyre. However, the spurious Freemasonry did not cease to exist because of this union at the Temple of the Jewish and Tyrian Freemasons. Indeed, that lasted for many centuries later than this period. But the Jewish and Tyrian cooperation affected a mutual use of their respective doctrines and ceremonies. This brought about an end in due time of the two distinctive systems and the founding of a new one, the immediate forerunner of the present institution. Such a delightful romance where the imagination has been permitted to run riot, assumptions are boldly advanced as facts, and statements are made which there is no attempt to support by reference to authority, has all the charm of adventure. For long years these essays of invention have been accepted by thousands upon thousands of the fraternity, and are still accepted by the masses as a true history of the rise and progress of Freemasonry. Brother Mackey explains in most pertinent style how his views changed on this subject. Quote, in my younger days, when my researches were directed rather to the design and to the symbolism of the order than to the history, which I was willing to take from older and more experienced heads, I had been attracted by the beauty and ingenuity of this romantic tale, and gave without hesitation my adhesion to it. But when my studies took a historical direction, and I began to apply the canons of criticism to what I was reading on this subject, I soon found and recognized that the landscape which I had viewed with so much pleasure was, after all, only a wonderful mirage. I have therefore been compelled to abandon this theory and to seek for one more plausible and more consistent with the facts of history. I have come to this conclusion with great reluctance, because I was unwilling to throw aside the picture I had so long admired, and which was the work of masters whose labors I respected and whose memory I venerated. But I am forced to say, with Aristotle, that though Plato and Socrates be my friends, yet truth is a greater friend, and one that I must value above them both." End quote. When we look at the course pursued by these Masonic historians of the early part of the 18th century, it is sad to think how many glorious opportunities of preserving facts in the history of the institution have been lost by the mistaken direction of their views. We have in the history of St. Mary's Lodge by Brother J. Murray Lyon a fair sample of what might have been done by Dr. Anderson if he had pursued a similar plan with the two editions of the Constitutions compiled by him. Anderson must have had access in 1723 to many documents of great importance bearing on the history of Freemasonry in the latter part of the 17th and in the beginning of the 18th century. There were undoubtedly minutes of lodges within his reach, but the lodges are now extinct and the records perhaps forever lost. In these, he would have found authentic evidence of the manners and customs, the organization and the regulations of the operative Freemasons, and could have accurately defined the line by which operative Freemasonry passed on the way to a purely speculative system. 
On these subjects he has maintained silence. In the first edition he has not said a word of the actual condition of Freemasonry at the time of his writing, but he has wasted pages in an inaccurate story of the rise and progress of architecture, which had been already written by far better authority, because a professional architect with equal ability as an author can write a history of his own science more skillfully than a doctor of divinity. Even of the four lodges which in 1717 organized the Grand Lodge of England, a few lines comprise the brief account that he gives. He tells us their names and the locality where they held their meetings, and no more. Yet these lodges must have had their history. There must have been minute books of some kind, however imperfect might have been the records, and these minute books, only three or four, must have been in existence before Anderson began the compilation of his book, and from his position in the order must have been within his reach. Nevertheless, he has treated these records, invaluable to the future Masonic historian, and which should have been invaluable to him, with a silence akin to contempt. Comparing this treatment of the early English records with the manner in which Lyon has used those of Scotland, we can not too much deplore this neglect of the real duties of a historian. The result of this difference in handling the same subject by two historians has been that while we are made by Lyon familiar with the true history of the Scottish lodges in the 17th century, with their regulations, their usages, their modes of reception, and almost everything that belongs to their internal organization, we are so far as we can gather anything from Anderson absolutely as ignorant of all that relates to the English lodges of the same period as if no such bodies had ever existed. Such neglect of opportunities never to be recalled, such utter silence on topics of the deepest interest, and such waste of time and talent in making a lifeless story of architecture instead of an authentic narrative of the Masonic history passing before his eyes, or with which he must have been familiar from existing documents, and from conversing with many of the actors in that history, is not only to be deeply regretted, but to be regarded almost as a crime. Anderson's compilation gave form and feature to all later histories of Freemasonry until a recent period. Smith, Calcutt, Preston, and Oliver followed in his footsteps, only pouring, as it were, from one vial into another, so that all the use of early Freemasonry before the year 1717, as treated by English and French writers, has been almost wholly without the necessary element of authenticity. These historians dealt in suggestions, assumptions, guesses, fancies, and romantic legends so as to lead the student of their pages in search of a historical light into a tangled web of doubt and confusion. The Germans have done better, bringing the Teutonic instinct of laborious research to the investigation of Masonic history. They have done much toward the discovery of truth. English Freemasons, forming a school of iconoclasts or image-breakers, begun by rejecting improbabilities to give to that history a shape that will stand critical tests. It must be evident to the reader, from what has been said, that the history of Freemasonry upon which this book is about to enter will be treated in a method that seeks to approach that accuracy with which authentic history should always be written. From the causes already assigned, there must often be an embarrassment in finding proper evidence to authenticate the material offered to the inspection of the reader. But in no case will fiction be presented in the place of facts. When the occurrence cannot be proved by authority, such events will not be recorded as historical. It may be thought that such events have occurred and such a conjecture be entirely legitimate, but its value will be determined by its plausibility. It will be a matter of logical inference and not of historical statement. Thus, one of the great errors of Anderson will be avoided. He continually presents his conjectures as facts without warning, and thus leaves the reader in doubt as to when he is writing history and when indulging in romance or in assumptions. 
Pursuing this method, we reject the theory that Freemasonry received its organization at the Temple of Solomon. There is no historical evidence of the truth of this claim. The only authorities on this subject are the Book of Kings and Chronicles. That of Josephus need not be referred to, because it is simply a compilation of Jewish history made up out of the scriptural account. The account of the events that occurred at the building of the temple is very briefly related in those books, and gives us no authority for saying that there was any organization of the builders at all like the one described in our Masonic histories. Similar objections may be urged against all other theories seeking to connect the rise of the Masonic institution from bodies which were not architectural in their character. We fall back, therefore, upon that theory which since the time of Abbey Grandadier has been gradually gaining strength, and which connects the speculative Freemasonry of our own times with the operative Freemasonry of the Middle Ages, never abandoning for a moment the guiding idea that Freemasonry, in whatever aspect it may be viewed, whether as operative or speculative, ancient or modern, has always been connected in some way with the art of building and with a guild organization. We shall proceed to trace its early history not in religious communities or in social fraternities, but solely in the associations organized for the pursuit and practice of architecture. Finding such associations among the ancient Romans, we shall endeavor to pursue the course of these associations, from their birth in the imperial city and in the time, and under the fostering care of Numa, to their spreading abroad with the Roman legions into the conquered countries of Gaul, Germany, and Britain. Their later founding in these lands of fraternities they called Colleges of Workmen, or Collegia Fabrorum, out of which, after the, the decay of the empire and the wiping out of the armies, developed in the gradual course of civilization the societies of traveling Freemasons who sprang from the old school of Como in Lombardy. Thence, by slow but sure steps, we advanced to the time of the operatives or stonemasons of Germany, France, and Britain, a development of the Comacene fraternity. This will bring us to the era when the operative system was wholly given up as a practice, and when the society was delivered to the pursuit of the speculative philosophy, still, however, retaining the evidence within itself of its architectural parentage, by the selection of its symbols and its peculiar language, as well as by many features of its organization. The linking, according to this theory, of Freemasonry with the art of building, a connection that has never, even its speculative form, been wholly severed, will necessarily lead to discussions in the course of this history upon the allied topics of Roman, Byzantine, and Gothic architecture. These subjects will be discussed not as mere architectural studies, but solely in their close relationship to Freemasonry, and in respect to the interplay influences that were exerted upon Freemasonry and its followers by the varying systems of architecture and that produced on them by the skill and intelligence of the Freemasons. There will be no attempt to write a history of architecture and to call it, as Dr. Anderson has unfortunately done, a history of Freemasonry. A sincere and energetic effort will be made to write a history of Freemasonry in its connection and reference to architecture. Every Freemason, said the Chevalier Ramsay in his less historical than inspiring hypothesis, is a Templar. Perhaps the truer doctrine is that, in the olden time, every Freemason was an architect, using this word in its best meaning to signify a builder. Henry Hallam says in his History of the Middle Ages that, quote, the curious subject of Freemasonry has unfortunately been treated of only by panegyrists or calumniators, both equally mendacious, end quote. He thinks that it would be interesting to know more of the history of the craft during a period in which they were actually the architects of buildings. The desire here expressed, it, it is the object and the design of this work to gratify. 
Whether the object has been successfully achieved can be determined only when the work is finished. Let us say, in bringing this introductory essay to a close, and we say it lest there should be any mistake as to our views, that the theory which we shall seek to establish is not the Freemasons of the present day are in direct and uninterrupted descent from the Roman colleges of artificers, other than that these later associations brought by the Roman legions from the civilization of the empire into the comparatively rude provinces of Gaul, Germany, and Britain, those sentiments of architectural beauty, as well as those principles of architectural skill, which gave rise to the establishment of associations of builders who in time formed themselves into guilds. These guilds or fraternities at a very early period assumed an important place in the history and practice of the building art and associated themselves together for the purpose of teaching and spreading the principles and practice of building over certain parts of Europe. Thence arose the association known as traveling Freemasons, who, starting from their school in Lombardy, traveled over the continent and erected many important edifices, mostly of religious type, such as monasteries and cathedrals. From these, the stonemasons of Germany, of France, and of England borrowed the system of guild formation, that is to say, the customs and regulations of a guild and the practice of their profession. These operative Freemasons, at various times, admitted into the membership and privileges of their guild many persons of rank, influence, and learning who were not professionally connected with the building art or trade. These honorary admissions gained two objects. They were received as gratifying compliments by the non-professional members and, at the same time, secured their good wishes and protection for the guild. But in the course of time, a separation took place between the operative Freemasons and the honorary members. The former adhered to the operative craft, but the latter, eliminating altogether the operative element, formed a new guild or fraternity of speculative Freemasons, whose only connection with architecture or building was that they preserved much of its technical words and tools, but consecrated them to symbolical purposes. Having thus abandoned the professional practice of the craft of building and assumed a purely philosophical character, they became the Freemasons, or the speculative craftsmen of the present day. Such is a brief, and of course rough, outline of the plan which will be pursued in the future prosecution of this history of the rise and progress of the Order of Freemasonry. Alright, so that was the opening essay of the history of Freemasonry. So moving forward, we're going to actually get historical information uh, and not rely so much on the legend. So with that, we'll catch you next time around. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within.